Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Cool Zone Media. Welcome to It Could Happen Here Book Club. I'm Robert Evans. This is a podcast about things falling apart. And this is our special weekend edition of It Could Happen Here, where Margaret Kiljoy and myself sit down and read a story. Well, Margaret reads the story. Uh, at this point, I am listening to it. Presumably, the format will uh, will, will switch up at some point. Uh, but But right now, Margaret... How are we? I'm, I'm excited for part three of, of the first Danielle Kane book. Are, are you excited to give it to me? I, I am excited to give it to you, Robert. And, you know, when we switch up the format, you'll just make mm-hmm. up a story as we go. Well, like at the yeah. stop in the middle of the chapter, and then you just make up what happens. Yeah. I guess that's just called Dungeons and Dragons, actually. Oh, I, I yeah, I was. Uh, we could call it Dungeons and Dragons. I was just going to read from one of my Thomas Pynchon books because no one else is act. No one's. No one has actually ever finished one, so it'll it'll be as if I'm. Uh, I'm just making up a story. I admit I've never finished a Thomas Pynchon. No, book. no, no. Of course not. Why? You, you, there's things to do in the world, Margaret. You're not got to finish a Thomas Pynchon book. As I get older, I have more interest in like finally sitting down and reading War and Peace and all that shit. But I, I just keep looking at my copy of Alan Moore's Jerusalem and going, one yeah. day, <laughs> one <Yeah>. day. <laughs> exactly. That'll be yeah. like when we're finally, and we'll do the book club version. We'll be like, uh, book club presents War and Peace, followed yeah. by. Uh, Jerusalem followed by Infinite Jest. Yeah. Yeah, finally. That, or, that, we'll, we'll, we'll get Jamie Loftus on for that one. She loves reading <laughs> Infinite Jest. <laughs> <laughs> or we'll read novellas by... I once ran my... Uh, I won't tell people. I once ran one of my books through a, what grade level is this adult book that I wrote. Mm-hmm. And I was very proud to say that one of my books was written at a fifth or sixth grade reading level. That's all you need, baby. I did all of my real important reading by the time I was six. <laughs> Great. I've Great. actually been, I'm, I'm friends with this baby now, so I've been reading some uh, uh, Dr. Seuss with her. And mm-hmm. man, those are good books. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of the human uh, human condition contained within Hop on Pop. I hadn't realized. <laughs> Once you move up to Shell Silverstein, mm-hmm. oh and then hell yeah, directly from there to Danielle Kane. Mm-hmm. That's right. The Shell Silverstein of vaguely Lovecraftian horror yeah. fiction, horror yeah. punk, horror what punk. If- I'd say. Shell Silverstein punk? wrote Something like that. Scooby-Doo. I don't know. I, I gave up on asterisk punk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I uh, th- that's, that's the next AI-generated thing I would like to see. Shell Silverstein Scooby-Doo. <laughs> <laughs> so, where we last left our heroes, we're starting with Chapter 5. Everyone else will have just heard, presumably, like a week ago, Chapter 4. But we haven't heard it in a moment because there was a break between recordings. And so, Daniel Kane is showed up to a town. There's a three antler deer that's goring people, and some people in the town love it, and some people in the town hate it. And the town is gearing up for some conflict. Chapter five. My second night in freedom began more somberly than my first. It was well after dark by the time Vulture showed up with potatoes and onions and spring greens to be cooked before heading back to the lookout rock. The Days and Bryn were in the living room working through plans, which left me alone to cook. I was happy to spend some time in the kitchen. It had been a long time since I'd been surrounded by people living the way I wanted to live, and I was almost able to convince myself that things were going to be fine. I've got a long history of scraping together little moments of peace in the midst of hardship, and cooking is a great way to do that. I cubed the potatoes and, alongside lots of garlic and oil, set them in a pan in the oven. I went through their spice rack and realized half of what they had had been grown, dried, and chopped here in town. I let myself get lost in the smell of fresh and dried herbs. The Brussels sprouts were from the food bank, but were going to taste amazing regardless. I cut them up, drizzled them with oil and salt, put them in the second tray. I've made fancier meals in my life, but it still felt good. I set the old-fashioned kitchen timer and went to join everyone else. You can't figure it out? Bryn asked. She was pacing. She didn't strike me as the type who worried much, but she was worried. Even Doomsday looked paler than usual. She leaned back in her easy chair, feigning nonchalance, but her teacup trembled in her hand. I didn't lead the ritual. I was blindfolded. I've spent all day poring over my books, and there's nothing there. Nothing. Nothing about dismissing a spirit? Bryn asked. Or nothing about Ulixie? Nothing. Thursday was standing, statuesque, at his partner's side. There was certainly more to their relationship than him trying his hardest to guard her, I was sure. But times call for us to fulfill certain roles. Will Rebecca know how? Bryn asked. I don't think so, Doomsday said. Vulture went to warn her last night. And how did he put it? She's gone paranoid. Jet fuel can't melt steel beams level paranoid. Made him show her his ribs. Vulture said, and I agree, that you only get that kind of paranoid when you've just got no agency at all. When you wish you had control over your life, but you just don't. She and Clay planned the ritual together. I don't know that either of them would know how to do it alone. What are our options? Bryn asked. If we leave town, take Rebecca with us, will it come after us? Thursday asked. It probably can't, Doomsday said. But it's a moot point. I won't leave without cleaning up my own mess. Rebecca's place is warded too, Thursday asked. You Lixie can't get her. If you and Rebecca stay inside, what's it going to do? Nothing? Attack the people close to you? I have no idea, Doomsday said. 
She set down her tea, untouched, then pulled her feet up onto the chair and hugged her knees. Where are Clay's notebooks, I asked. People turned to me, realizing for the first time I was in the room. The only thing he liked more than the sound of his own voice was the sight of his own handwriting, I said. When he died, he didn't have any of his journals on him. He lived with Anchor for a while, Bryn said. They broke up last winter and Clay took it kind of badly. No one knows what they were fighting about, though. For a year and a half, they were inseparable, then a week of quarreling, and it was over. They were fighting about Ulixie, Doomsday said. Anchor worshipped it as it was, didn't need to know anything more about it. Clay wanted to understand it, so he moved into the basement of that gas station down by the bridge, where it lives. He, he moved in with it, I asked. Doomsday nodded. So if Clay left notebooks, they'd be there? Doomsday nodded. We have to go get them bring them to Rebecca. Doomsday was lost in thought. Slowly, she nodded. The deer thing, I said. It's only up during the day, right? Powerless at night? I'll go now. When you know you're going to do something anyway, it's better not to overthink it. Definitely better not to let your mind linger on the cost-benefit analysis. But going to find his notebooks got me closer to solving both my problems all at once. I could find out what happened to Clay, and I could help this Rebecca person dismiss Ulixie and hope Doomsday wasn't going to summon something worse. Something that lived up to her name. I'll take you, Bryn said. I'll lend you my gun in case the ghouls are out, Doomsday said. She crossed the room and went up the stairs. I didn't want the ghouls to be out. Neither of you have to do this, Thursday said. Yeah, we do, Bryn said. Doomsday came down the stairs two at a time, her hand on the banister. It's gone, she said. My gun's gone. Anyone else would have asked Thursday if he'd put it away the night before, but Doomsday didn't even entertain the possibility that her partner would have handled the firearm irresponsibly. Eric, Bren said, during the funeral. No, Doomsday said, we saw him the entire time, except maybe the ten minutes we stepped away. He stayed there the whole time, I said. Eric wouldn't know we had a gun, wouldn't know where it would be, he's never in the house. Kestrel, I said. Wasn't he at the funeral the whole time too, Thursday asked. I knew I was the most likely third suspect, and what I was about to tell them wasn't going to help. No, I said. Kestrel wasn't there at the end. I told them about meeting Eric, about our conversation in the park, about how Kestrel showed up late. He'd had plenty of time to steal the gun. It's not nice to rat people out like that, but it's also not nice to steal people's guns. Doom, Thursday said. Can we keep you away from the windows? Maybe take Bryn's room? He climbed up on the couch to lock the window. Likely there were bars ready to go over the doors. There's not a squatter alive who hasn't been through their house and analyzed all the ways the police might break in. Hell, usually we've already broken in once ourselves. Thursday left to secure the house against human intruders, and Doomsday made her way, defeated, up the stairs. Bryn and I stood in the living room, facing one another, getting ready to head into the night. The kitchen timer went off. Dinner was ready. No one was in the mood to enjoy it. We walked down the middle of the street, and I was calmer than I thought I'd be, probably because I had a plan. I had something I was going to do. I wore my pack, emptied but for some essentials. We had no idea how many books we'd be trying to bring with us, so the extra storage was important. It had been dark for hours, and I scanned the power lines for those creepy ghoul birds. Either they weren't there, or I couldn't see them. What I did see were torches. Below us, coming up from the river, people were walking with torches. I counted a dozen specks of flame dancing through the night. Bryn saw them too. Mourners, she said, people celebrating Ulixie. 
What? It's a tradition, Bryn said. Any other night, it wouldn't be something sinister. Hell, two days ago, I would have been with them. But tonight, it can't be good. She led the way off the street, through a front yard sculpture garden of rusted rebar animals, Ulixie and his ghouls I recognize now. We took shelter in an ivy-covered, roofless house and peered back out at the street through what was left of a window and what was left of a kitchen. The torches came around the bend. Nine adults and three children bore them, each with a homemade animal mask, goats and geese, sparrows and sheep. One of the figures stood head and shoulders above the crowd. They marched past us in silence. When they turned the next bend in the road, we left our shelter and started back down the hill. The basement door, I learned, was just off the river near the base of the bridge. We scrambled down a steep path, then hopped from rock to rock along the edge of the water. The trees were thick down here. The gibbous moon cast enough light that we could make our way without turning on our headlamps. A breeze brought the earthy smell of the forest, and the river was a white noise that drowned out all other ambient sound. What's in it for you? Bryn asked as she clambered over a fallen tree. Why aren't you skipping town? For some of the last months of Clay's life, he'd walked this path every morning and night. You know there's a part of me that hates this place, I asked. It was rhetorical, of course, and Bryn didn't answer. I'm too stubborn to give up traveling. Clay wasn't. That same stubbornness is going to carry me through. I came here to find out what happened to him. I'm going to. I clambered over a fallen log, the bark digging into my hands. And also, this is clearly the most important reason. Could you imagine just leaving now, never learning what's going to happen? The fear of missing out would rip my heart out of my chest as surely as that deer. Bryn laughed. I like when she laughed. We continued on along the water, and I heard the dry heave of ghouled animals. I never would have expected that would be a sound I'd come to recognize. We crouched low, peered into the woods. We're almost there, Bryn said. She pointed. The base of the gas station went all the way down to the water, and a chain-link fence stood between us and the door, with a simple, unlocked gate. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. 
The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When I focused, I could just make out a dozen silhouettes between us and where we wanted to go. Goats and geese, squirrels and sheep. In all respects but for their lack of organs and ribs, they acted like every barnyard animal I'd ever met. Docile, annoying, and fully aware of the sorrow and emptiness of their captive lives. They're awake, I said. Should we go around? In through the front? Bryn shook her head. The trapdoor to the basement is welded shut. Should we, I don't know, herd them somewhere? Get them away from the door? Bryn, still crouching, flicked open her extendable baton. I sighed, then extended mine. The weight felt good in my hand. Most days, a baton made me think I could take on the world. That night, though, I wasn't so sure it was going to be enough. I wouldn't fight a single living goat by choice, let alone an undead one with all its friends. Bryn stood back up straight and walked right toward our destination. Always afraid, never a coward, I mumbled to myself. My blood started racing. I stood up, tightened all the straps on my pack, and followed. Animal eyes turned toward us with mute curiosity, which turned to malice as we tried to rush past them. A silent mess of geese got underfoot and lunged for my hands. I started swinging. It wasn't animal abuse, they were dead already. Some of the ones I hit didn't get up again. Bryn was almost to the gate when the goat ran at me. Someone or something had sheared off the beast's horns, presumably before Ulyxie had stolen the creature's ribcage. Not an easy life, or unlife or whatever. I pulled back and swung from the hip like a one-handed batter and hit the goat in the skull with all my strength. I must have grown up watching too many zombie movies. Hitting that thing's skull was like hitting a boulder, and I probably hurt my hand more than I hurt the goat. Still, the blow seemed to have stopped its charge. It was still in my way. It tried to bleat, but it had no lungs. I heard a low rumble like distant thunder and turned in time to see a demon bull crash out of the trees and barrel toward us. Oh, fuck, I said, or Bryn said. I started thrashing at the dumb goat in front of me with the baton. It bit my hand and I dropped the weapon. I dove over it, but my backpack destroyed my attempts at a smooth acrobatic roll. 
and I landed on my back. Bren helped me to my feet, and we were through the gate. I swung it shut, dropped the latch, and was knocked off my feet as the bowl slammed into the chain link. The fence post bent to a 45-degree angle, and the beast backed up to charge again. I got up again, clutching my bleeding right hand, and we stumbled in through the open door to the basement and slammed it behind us as though that pitch-dark room offered us safety. We switched on our headlamps. It was a single, large room, like any basement in any shitty house anywhere. A water heater and a furnace and pipes stood out from one wall, and a box spring and mattress lay on the floor in the near corner, with simple gray sheets and a pile of ratty old comforters. A milk crate served as a bedside table, and a short stack of books stood atop. Against the far wall, a blood-red deer with three antlers lay sleeping upon a knee-high pile of rib bones. As soon as my headlamp flashed across Ulixie, I put my hand over my light. But the demon didn't stir. With the sun below the horizon, he likely couldn't move at all. Bile rose in my throat. The bones Ulixie slept on weren't the pale white of long-dead, sun-bleached corpses. They were gray and yellow and gristly. Some of them, I surmised, were human. Let me see your hand, Bryn said. You're hurt. It's fine, I said. I hadn't really looked to tell if that was true. But I didn't want to look. Not until I was somewhere safe. It wasn't bleeding horrendously. I wrapped my wounded hand with the bandana from my back pocket, tight enough to keep pressure on the bite. Don't want you turning into a were-goat or something, though, Bryn laughed. It was a nervous laugh, probably because, well, I don't think either of us knew for certain if that was an actual possibility. It'll be fine, I whispered. I went to the books beside Clay's bed while Bryn stood watch. There was a copy of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the copy I'd given him. I opened the front page, saw my own handwriting. Clay, maybe you'll get as much out of this as I did. Under it, he'd written back, Danielle, I think at the end of it, you're more Nemo than I. It took all my presence of mind not to drop the book. Had he known I would come hunting after his ghost and end up looking through his bedside reading? More likely, he'd just written the note absentmindedly. But for fuck's sake, what did I know about the world anymore? The next book was history, something about the Kronstadt Rebellion, obscure Russian history when the Bolsheviks decided to kill all the anarchist sailors. I flipped through it, no notes to me, but here and there he'd highlighted passages. Last, a spiral-bound notebook. The first couple pages were filled with some college kids' English literature notes. A decade back, Clay had shown me that trick. Punk's Christmas, he called it. When the school year ended, college kids threw out everything from unopened food to art supplies to furniture to computers to, well, obviously notebooks. Head on over to the dumpsters, pick up anything you need. After the rote transcription of some boring lecture in a stranger's hand, however, I saw a page with Clay's handwriting on it. I threw the books into my backpack. From outside the open door, I heard birds. Dawn. Shit. Bryn and I had the same thought at the same time, and we grabbed one another and bolted across the room to crouch behind the furnace. A row of small windows lined the top of one wall. The first hint of color and light came through them a moment later, and Ulixie stirred. The sheer unreality of the situation took off the worst of my anxiety. Bryn held my good hands so tight it hurt almost as bad as the one the goat had bitten, and we watched Ulixie rise to face the day. For all the world, he moved like a regular deer, graceful but nervous. If he knew we were there, 
he made no sign. Instead, he headed for the door and was gone. We crouched in the encroaching dawn, our hands locked together, our breathing as quiet as we could make it, for full two minutes before we left to find Rebecca's treehouse. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A squatter's life is ruled by darkness. Breaking into buildings, digging through trash, even just sneaking up onto rooftops to see the city. All those things are easier and safer to do after dark. But the sun was up as we marched along and then away from the river. The day before summer solstice, it was going to be up for a long while still. I trained my eyes on the woods for movement. Walking in the forest, you don't see most of the animals. Only once I saw something, something in the branches above us. Could have been a squirrel or a bird. Hell, it could have been a mountain lion. 
Better a living mountain lion than an undead squirrel. After 20 minutes along the riverbank, it was an hour's hike up to a ravine. There was another way to Rebecca's place, a path that ran up over the top of the hill, but it would have taken us through town. We needed to get Clay's notes to Rebecca so she could figure out how to perform the ritual, and we couldn't risk running into Ulixie or Eric. Bryn led us unerringly with a compass and a laminated U.S. geographical survey map. Having a destination, Rebecca's treehouse, and an idea of how to get there were about all I had to prop up my waning courage. While we walked, I let myself wonder more about Eric and Kestrel. They said Doomsday and the rest, they were going to summon something worse. I'd play it by ear, I decided. Listen to Rebecca. Decide how much to trust her. We stopped only once to pick at the previous night's dinner from Tupperware. Bryn had a few bottles of cold coffee, and caffeine did its best to replace the adrenaline that had been slowly draining out of my system since we'd left the basement. I love coffee, she said, smiling. I know it's banal to say. I know I'm addicted. I know everyone loves it. I don't care. There's only a small handful of things in this world that make me happy, and and coffee's one of them. What's another, I asked. We were both slightly delirious. She thought about it for a while. Shit like feeling useful or not paying rent, right? But I'll stick with weaknesses. Romance novels. I fucking love trashy romance. The straighter, the better. The worse the politics, the better. I'll just eat that shit up. That's awesome, I said. Your turn, she said. We capped the coffee, started back up the ravine. I want to say horizons, because as often as not, the chance to get over the closest one is what gets me up in the morning. But you told me about romance novels, so I'll do you one better. Fan fiction. Erotic, queer fan fiction. I don't even care what fandom. Give me someone getting it on with a werewolf or a seahorse unicorn or whatever, and I'll be happy. Really? I read it on my phone, I said. You know I'm going to have to make fun of you about this, right? You won't be the first one, I said. I'm going to make fun of you about it, but I still want you to read it aloud to me. As soon as we get back to phone signal, I promised. God, my wiring was all kinds of fucked up for the rest of the hike, going crazy from lack of sleep. I was happier than I'd been in months. The treehouse was a beautiful little witch shack held a full 30 feet aloft between four narrow pines. Its siding had been blowtorched to black during the finishing process, and there was one porch on the side of the house and another on the roof. The windows were mix-matched and erratically placed. A rope and wood ladder dangled down, inviting us up. A black stovepipe thrust out and up from the side, and on the east slope of the hill like that, I knew it got a full view of dawn. I was in love. Rebecca! Bren had her tattooed hands up over her mouth to project her voice. Rebecca! Maybe she's in town, I asked after a few fruitless minutes. You heard, Vulture. She's not going anywhere for a while. There's a ward stone. There. Keeps Ulixie out. Bryn pointed to a single white stone about the size of my head, a circle subtly etched onto its face. Not sure why the ladder is down, though. She tested the ladder. It held her weight, so she made her way up. I followed. The house was even more gorgeous up close. Rebecca had done an amazing job, down to details like filigree carved into the door frame and an Ouroboros painted on the door. Bryn knocked. No answer. Rebecca! She shouted. I don't think she's here, I said, pointing to a padlock that held the door shut. Shit! Bryn said, stomping her foot on the porch and shaking the trees we were attached to. She went to the nearest window, peered in. She fell back, trembling. 
If it weren't for the railing, she might have fallen off the porch. I looked. The sun lit the floor in big squares where it came through the windows, and in one of those squares was a dead woman. She lay on her side with her eyes open, her mouth open. She was so small, almost childlike, but I could see in the lines in her face she'd lived at least a decade longer than me. I knew the hard way that when faced with a corpse, it's up to the person who didn't know the now-dead person to handle things. Clay had done it for me once when we found Agnes OD'd. I'd done it for him a year later, when it had been Sammy with his guts on the wrong side of a knife wound. Can you pick the lock, Brent asked. Clay always said you were good at shit like that. Probably, I said. I pulled a screwdriver from my pack, a large Phillips head with a rubber grip. I took my shirt off, wrapped it around my good hand, and jabbed at the corner of the window to break the glass. It broke with that strange thud that surprises me every time. Nothing like the sound you hear in movies. You've got to break glass against glass to get a noise like that. I reached through and unlocked the window, opened it, stepped inside. Bryn came in directly after. Some people respond to crisis by shutting down or running. Some people respond to crisis emotionally, which is probably the healthiest way. Myself, I handled crisis by shoving fear and sadness and worry down as far into my gut as I could. It's never nice when all that nasty shit comes up as trauma later, but the practice has kept me alive. Bryn, she was made of the same stuff as me, maybe sterner. She went directly to the corpse, started searching her friend for wounds. They weren't hard to find. Four bullet holes marked her sleeveless white blouse. All were on her torso, two on her chest, one near her hip, one in between. You know anything about forensics, Bryn asked? No, I said. Neither do I, but I know enough about shooting to tell you that that's a pretty fuck-off bad shot grouping. While Bryn saw to Rebecca, I scoured the rest of the one-room shack. A mattress lay on the floor in the corner. A bookshelf was filled to overfull with dried and tinctured herbs and jars and dropper bottles. Plantain and ragwort and feverfew, plus flowers and leaves I couldn't recognize, hung drying from lines stretched across the space. The wood-burning stove was cold. Since it was June, that didn't tell me much. An antique desk, the only piece of furniture in the room not hand-built from scrap lumber, took up most of one wall under a bank of windows. A ladder led to a trapdoor in the ceiling. Something like a dozen well-carved wooden figurines of deer littered the desktop, each no larger than my palm. They were stained blood red. A piece of cardboard ripped from a case of beer served as a cutting mat and a staining mat, it looked like, with silhouettes of dark stain and gathered chips of wood. The carving tools themselves were scattered all over the floor. Rebecca's corpse was close to where I stood. My mind wouldn't forget that fact for long enough to concentrate on anything else. Bullet holes pierced the plywood along the back wall. The bullets went out the back, I said, running my finger along the splintered wood. Who the fuck, Bren said. Eric, I said. We don't know that. Yeah, we do, I said. Who the hell else? Kestrel, maybe. But I bet it was Eric. Bryn closed Rebecca's eyes, then kept searching the body. She has a knife in her hand, a carving knife. Tears welled up, catching me by surprise. Here was a woman, cut down by a man afraid of her power. She'd fought back, knife versus gun. I never got to meet her, I said. I've got the feeling I really missed out. Yeah, Bryn said. I want to kill him, I said. It was true, a simple thing, a clear epiphany. I wanted to kill Eric for killing this woman, 
even though it could have been Kestrel. I wanted to kill Eric for killing her. Elixie might do it for you, Bryn said. Imagine his thinking, I said. He's got to have thought this through. Killing Rebecca means saving Elixie, means he's doomed himself to being killed by Elixie. Imagine being so sure of the righteousness of your cause, you're willing to sacrifice your own ideals to achieve them. Every politician ever, Bryn said. Every authoritarian communist. He killed her in cold blood, I said. I couldn't think straight. Killed her. She came up and wrapped her arms around me, and I buried my head into her chest, and my anger turned into something like sorrow. I cried. Standing over the body of her friend, she supported me. We've got to get back, I said, pulling away. I stepped out of the treehouse. The air outside was fresh, cleansing. Bryn joined me, and I went to the ladder and looked down. Ulixie stood silent, staring up at us from the ground. There was a hammock on the porch on the roof. Thick cotton rope held our weight, and our feet dangled over the edge like we were teenagers on a date, instead of squatters hiding from a demon and a corpse. It can't stay there all day, I said. I had a friend in town about six months back. You know how you think you know somebody and then they just do something awful? Beat their partner, abuse someone, something like that? Yeah, I said. So this guy I lived with, my friend Greg, I liked him all right. He was friendly, hardworking, really polite. His partner, Sam, no one liked her. She used to throw shit fits at General Assembly, hoard booze from the everything for everyone, that kind of thing. She worked hard too, I guess, but I don't know. She just rubbed everyone the wrong way. She and Greg had been together maybe three months when one night they were drunk and he raped her. I don't I don't know if he thought he raped her, but that never really matters. She didn't want to have sex with him that night, and he did it anyway. Yeah, it doesn't really matter what he thinks about that. The next day, the very next day, before she's even told anyone, Greg walks outside her house and there's Ulixie, just standing on the porch, just looking at him. He goes the fuck back inside and he waits. Elixie's out there, not moving, until sunset. The rest of us come and go, but that fucking deer was just waiting for him, watching him. What happened? As soon as night fell, Sam drove him up to Minneapolis, kicked him out of the car, and said if she ever saw him again, she'd kill him herself. I whistled. Moral of the story is that Elixie most definitely can stay there all day. We're not predators, I said. No, but we're hunting for a way to dismiss it, aren't we? I can see why you all kind of like having it around, though, with a story like that. I'm not going to tell you it hasn't been nice, Brent said, up until the point when it wasn't. I'm always so quick to resort to violence, I said. I'm not ashamed of that. I think it's necessary sometimes. But damn, it'd be nice to be able to just quit violence cold turkey. Let a spell take care of it for me. There's no magic bullet, though, Brent said. Never was, never will be, I agreed. It should have been a beautiful day. It was warm enough that the breeze felt good, but not hot enough to be uncomfortable. Fuck, I said, how are we going to dismiss it now? I guess it's up to doomsday. Yeah. We were halfway up to the canopy, and I could see the forest and the river and the prairie in the distance. More herbs hung, drying all around us, and their scents combined to be just short of overwhelming. More important, Bryn sat next to me, all worked up to sweating from everything, and her smell was overwhelming. She had her arm around the small of my waist, Mine was around her back. Let me see your hand, she said. No, it's fine. The bandana was still wrapped tight around the wound. My palms still hurt, but I wasn't ready to look at it. There was an awful lot of shit going on just then that I wasn't ready to let myself think too much about. God, I wish you'd shown up like a month ago or something, Bryn said. What do you mean? It'd be nice to get to know you proper, Bryn said, instead of like this. 
Oh, you don't like demon hunting with me, I asked. Bryn giggled. I looked at her, and she must have gotten self-conscious about giggling, because she started giggling harder, covering her face and laughing. She fell onto her side in the hammock, and I had my arms around her, and I started laughing too. What a fucking day, I said. What a fucking day, she agreed. We both fell asleep like that, curled up on the hammock. I dreamt about jail. A few hours later, I broke out of dream jail by waking up, but I was still trapped. I peered over the edge of the treehouse roof, and Ulyxie peered right back at me. The bull was beside him. That woke me up all the way, and I looked to the trees around me. Squirrels and birds, all undead, sat silent on the branches not ten feet from my head, all staring at me with their glossy eyes. Like as not, they'd been there for hours already, and they didn't seem to want to attack. Just watch. Just bore into me. Bryn was snoring, her head craned back. I trusted her, I realized. Everything around me was terrifying and none of it made sense. But Bryn seemed to accept it, and I was learning to accept her. Freedom ran on trust. I needed to trust someone. I flipped through Clay's notebook. His handwriting only graced 12 pages. On each, he'd written the same single line. The only way out is through. The last page had another line underneath the first. What hand dare sees the fire? He'd always been saying shit like that. When you needed advice, he was always there, saying something needlessly cryptic, but reasonably wise. (laughs) I wish he'd listened to his own advice, though. I wish he'd kept going. I wish he'd found his way through. Sitting there, then, with the sun dappled through the leaves and the needles of the forest, I tried to piece out what had happened to him. At his funeral... I thought he'd given up because there wasn't any future in riding the rails. But that wasn't it. It couldn't be it. That was me seeing more of me in him than there really was. Motherfucker had spent 15 years looking for the hobo utopia, the big rock candy mountain, until he just gave up and made the place. Then he defended it, with the witchcraft he knew. Then he'd run away. Then he'd done Ulyxie's work all on his own and ended his own life. Why? Maybe because he'd been exiled from paradise by a beast of his own making. Maybe because he'd decided freedom was home and he couldn't come back. That's what having a home will do to you, maybe. I dropped the notebook onto the hammock. Bryn woke up. The only way out is through, I said. Pardon? I showed Bryn the pages. We did all this and we've got nothing. Nothing from Clay, nothing from Rebecca, and we can't get home to warn anyone there's a killer on the loose. That's funny, Bryn said. That's not the quote. Quote? He says the best way out is always through, and I agree to that, or insofar, as that I can see no way out but through. It's from a Robert Frost poem, A Servant to Servants. It's a true statement, I guess, I said, but it doesn't do us any good. He got the other one closer. What the Hand Dare Seize the Fire, The Tiger by William Blake. That line mean anything to you, I asked? Hell, it means even less to me than the Robert Frost. Clay moved into the gas station because he was studying Ulyxie, right? Trying to learn how to dismiss it. Yeah. And the only thing he wrote down, I said, in all that time, was some misquoted poetry. I guess. Here, come downstairs with me. I went to the hatch in the roof, opened it, and climbed down the ladder. The house stank of death, leaving us gagging, and I opened all the windows that could be opened. We tried our best not to stare at the dead woman on the floor. For a few hours more... We just had to keep ourselves from thinking too hard about her. 
These, I said, pointing to the twelve deer figurines on the desk. What do you make of these? She was obsessed, Bryn said. Half the town is obsessed, though. She held up her hand, showing me her Ulixi tattoo. I picked up one of the red figures and, on a whim, lined it up to the dark outlines of stain on the cardboard that marked where it had been painted. I did the same with the rest, a sort of simple jigsaw puzzle. They formed a circle, each facing clockwise. The figure at one o'clock was on its side, and the figure at twelve stood over it, its mouth down by the other's ribs. Like it was killing it. Like it was eating its heart. I don't know what it means, I said. I don't think it's a coincidence, though. Clay writing twelve pages and Rebecca carving twelve figurines. No, I don't suppose it is. Oh, I said, twelve pages, twelve figures, twelve months, solstice to solstice. It's just telling us that our only chance is tomorrow, which we already knew. Which we already knew, she agreed. Hooray. But what are they going to do, Robert Evans? Well, I don't know, Margaret, um, but you being my uh, my friend who always has a cryptic response <laughs> to everything anyone says, uh, I'm excited to find out. <laughs> yeah. When I first started writing these two characters, it was a very long time ago. I've been writing um, Clay and, and Daniel Kane for like, since I was like 20. And Clay was always the, the guy standing there with cryptic things to say. I think I'm just trying to grow into him. What were you saying? I do, I do like that one of the through lines here is you've got, there's both like a lot of focus on how careful these, uh, these punk kids are with their guns uh, and how <laughs> not careful they are with magic, <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, yeah, I enjoy. Like one of them is the very, like, because the, the harm and the danger is incredibly clear with a gun, right? You've got like an end and the thing comes out of the end and you want to be real careful that nothing is in front of that end that you don't want things through. Yeah. Uh, whereas the magic is much, much less unclear in how it functions in some ways. And so it, it, it leads to this kind of, I don't know, maybe recklessness on behalf of the protagonists. Oh, that is interesting. I yeah. No, that makes sense to me. And it's a kind of like, you know, this, this, like maybe by the time there's 10 of these books, they'll be like going around and teaching magic safety classes. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> um, well, it's also, it's interesting just because there's also a very, I mean, a, a very punk attitude towards it. Like I, I think about the ways in which like a lot of the the older anarchist punks that I know treat the police, the kind of like the, 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 ver- the great care and sort of like wariness with which they treat the police and then the recklessness with which they treat something like a train. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, better be careful. There's police around. Be real yeah, careful. Yeah. That, like, <laughs> I'm going to hop on this moving beast. <laughs> yeah. And if you get scared, just drink some whiskey and that'll help you jump yeah, on. Yeah. That'll get you straight. <laughs> God, I like, definitely, I always had two rules about train hopping. You don't hop on while it's moving and you always hop on sober until the one day when the only way to get out of Milwaukee was to hop on a moving train. And so I was scared. So we all drank whiskey in order to get unscared. Don't do what I did. It was bad. Yeah. I almost saw my friend get sucked under the wheels and someone, the the kid who was showing us the yeah. hop out spot, like pulled her back away from the fucking wheels. Now I did a, an, an interview that has always stuck with me when I was at Cracked for an article with this young woman in a boulder who was doing train hopping on the college campus and went, just timed it badly and lost both her legs. Yeah. 
the the older punk she was jumping with was a former army medic and tourniqueted her legs like on the spot is the only reason she didn't die yeah and then got blamed he like got blamed because he was the older one yeah like inciting her to jump and she was like well no i was everyone did this all of the dumb kids we all did train hopping he's the he didn't get me killed he's the only reason i didn't die (laughs) yeah um but yeah if you're listening don't jump on moving trains and don't jump on moving trains do it sober But also, do be careful with your guns, too. Yes. Both, yeah. Totally. And magic, probably, if that's real. I don't know. Oh, I was going to advise people to be real reckless with that shit. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know. Yeah. What could yeah. go wrong? Yeah. Well. All right, Margaret. Well, that's uh, that's this episode in the, in the can. Yep. See you all next Sunday for another episode of Cool Zone Book Club. That's right. With the vocal fry. Other that's an important buggers. part of the... Yeah. Yeah. Bye. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.